You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down, or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart, and I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. I'm excited to introduce our guest for today. It is D.L. Mayfield, who lives and writes on the outskirts of Portland, Oregon, with her husband and two small children. Her first book of essays, Assimilate or Go Home, Notes from a Failed Missionary on Rediscovering Faith, was released by Harper One in 2016. And we're really excited about her second book, which is excellent. It's The Myth of the American Dream, Reflections on Affluence, Autonomy, Safety, and Power, which is going to be released in April 2020. Her writing has appeared in a variety of places. This includes uh, Mick Sweeney's Christianity Today, Sojourners, The Washington Post, Image Journal, Vox, and The Rumpus, among many other places. Um, and one thing that is important um, that she wants everyone to know is that she's trying very hard just to be a good neighbor. Um, and I personally got to um, meet Danielle, also known as D.L. Mayfield, um, at a what was it, a Red Letter Christians mm-hmm. gathering um, in Montgomery, Alabama, connecting with Equal Justice Initiative and Brian um, Stevenson's work down there. And so um, she's an excellent person. We're just excited to have her on the show today. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to talk with you guys. You. Danielle, the first hard-hitting question, can Christians be punk rockers too? <laughs> I don't know, Jared. What do you think? <laughs> hey, your pronunciation was pretty good. Yay! There wasn't much of yeah. You did, you did well. all things to all people. I don't know if you're a failed missionary. That was pretty good. Oh, I still got the skills. I still got them. <laughs> um, we usually start by having you uh, read a particular passage. Now, spoilers ahead. I know what passage you've chosen and what Drew didn't tell you, despite your efforts to go. Is it okay to do this passage? This passage has done been done before on inverse. I, I don't I don't want to intimidate you at all. But the the other person who chose this passage was um, I don't know some Franciscan named Richard Raw. So no pressure, oh right? Oh my gosh, Drew! Would you like to read the passage? That was for before us? I was Daniel? on the show, Drew. <laughs> well, you're gonna get the old deal treatment, and oh no, okay. <laughs> but I'm excited. That means you guys have already thought about it and we'll have some fun things to say right okay it is a very I would say important passage for so many people and it's one that has changed my life but I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 4 verses 14 all the way through 30 actually I want to go all the way there oh giddy up a little bit of context I know I I got the end is really important (laughs) (laughs) but you know in my bible like the headings and stuff it always said this is Jesus announcing his ministry. So that's like how I think of the passage because of hmm. the headings. Okay. So I'm reading out of the NIV. Well, I, I was reading I a book that. recently and they were saying, this isn't merely about what Jesus was going to do, but what he is doing. Oh, <laughs> that's exactly. Okay. Um, so, dear listener, that that's actually a quote from Danielle's book. <sighs> yes. Okay. So Luke 4. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. 
he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has set me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up drove him out of town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Thank you. So um, one of the things that we like to do is explore, you know, your own story as it relates to thinking about the scriptures. So I'm curious, when do you remember first encountering the scriptures? Yeah, I was born into a family where my dad is a pastor. So it feels like I always was a Christian. There was no, you know, real choice even in the matter. I do remember attending something called Awanas. Do you know about that, Drew? I've, I've heard of it. I mean, I've never participated, but I've yeah, heard of I it. don't even know what it stands for, but it's like this thing for Christian kids to go to and you just kind of like memorize scripture verses and right. you get little rewards. And I remember you would literally have these like fake gold plastic crowns and you would earn jewels for your crown. I know. And you would be like reciting the Romans road to this like room full of six year olds. And I was like really good at it. And now, and and for those of us who, who don't know Romans road, well, like some of the verses, for instance, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is the eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord, blah, blah, blah. You know? I, I, I just think, like, th- these are worlds within themselves. Uh, a, a number oh of people gosh. might be going, well, hang on, crowns? What's a Roman's road? <laughs> What's a Roman's road? jewels? <laughs> hang on, I don't understand. What? what? Yeah, are we getting oh, into yes. archaeology here? Like, what's going on, right? So this is yeah. like... Daniel, I'm just trying to not have you written off, like, straight away, because, like, this is so American right now. Like, this is... <laughs> so, it's so American, and it's kind of important for me to locate myself in the belly of the beast, which I would say is white, <laughs> white evangelical American Christianity, right? This is uh, how I was raised. And it's been really important for me to sort of recognize, wow, that was a pretty unique experience where, you know, I thought that's how everybody was. So I, I grew up definitely with a familiarity with the Bible. I was homeschooled. So my parents didn't send me to godless liberal public school i was homeschooled wow. only christian textbooks and so yeah for history and, and what, I did, would, what does that mean only christian textbooks so like oh jared do you really want to go here well i think <laughs> like, um, for, for a bunch of us um uh there's these shorthands for this like very american subculture that a lot of us elsewhere around the world the majority of the world just don't understand so yeah. like you, you say um 
only so you're reading what Dante? I, I don't know. You're, you're reading. No, I mean, um, that's probably the goal. Eventually I never got to Dante, but like, so our history textbooks would be written what they would say a Christian worldview. And so you can actually really unpack like what that <laughs> I, I love means. that the bunny and, ears quotations are happening as you say. Well, that. The, fu- the funny thing is a Christian worldview did not become important until, um, you know, segregation became mandated. Right. Uh, Drew will know what I'm talking about. Yep. And yep. so there's all these coded phrases that white Christians in particular started using to, se- to separate themselves from a world that was demanding them to be inclusive in ways they did not want to be a part of. And so homeschooling in the U.S. really did take off right around when Brown versus Board of Education happened, which is when the U.S. court said that schools were not legally allowed to be segregated. So there's, and that's not the only reason, but it's a <laughs> so big So a Christian worldview took one. off as, as Christians were actually having to become more Christ-like. That's what, that's yeah, but they, they viewed it as a way of losing power, one more step right. of losing power. And so right. for me, my actual, actually my history textbooks, I went and bought some on eBay because, you know, I didn't really remember much about them. And looking through the history textbooks in particular, it's very disturbing. It starts off, the Christian worldview would be one that America was a beautiful land just ripe for, you know, the Christian Protestants to come and take over because Native Americans worshipped the the creation and not the creator. It was basically just lying in wait for white Christians to come and take over. And so that's how the history books start. And you can imagine where it goes from there. But they literally say the, the great sin of the Civil War in the United States was not slavery. It was that God's beautiful, perfect America was broken into. And until we get back to that, um, until we make America great and whole again, you know, we'll mm. never have God's blessing back. And so, whoa, it's just all there. I'm sorry. I'm going, to, I'm wow. going into the weeds here, but this, this is my yeah. story. And this is how I read scripture was within this context. So I think, yeah. I think it does all tie together. I will say I did go to Bible college to be um, a missionary. And so I got a degree in intercultural studies. And that's really when I started to have some deep, concerns about the gospels in particular and i kind of felt like am i is there something wrong with me because i would read the gospels and i would say and you know i didn't know anything about lectio divina or like imagining myself in the scriptures but when i read it i was like it's so clear to me that i'm a religious person in these stories like i'm the religious people who are always upset at jesus but i feel like i couldn't say that because at my bible college (laughs) we were always the elect the unique and we were the disciples but i was like it seems pretty Mm. clear to me that i i'm i'm the people who would have opposed jesus um and then i had this one class where they always talked about the kingdom of god because that's jesus's number one message and my dad told me this growing up as a pastor, whenever I asked him, what, what does it mean when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God? And he'd always say, oh, it means the rule and reign of God in your heart and life. And I'd be like, okay, well, what does that mean? And that's like where the conversation ended. So we had a running joke, me and this professor, every day I'd come to class and I'd say, well, what does the kingdom of God mean? Like, hmm. I, I think what I was trying to say is, what does it mean for us today? Because everybody I knew was a Christian. Everyone I knew said Jesus was Lord of their life. And I'm like, we live just like everybody else. Like mm-hmm. we're just as full of contradictions. We're just as full of yeah. greed and a desire for power and treating each other horrible as anybody else. I don't understand 
what Jesus was so obsessed with. And I think that just shook me to my core, just mm-hmm. realizing, I, realizing I don't understand the fundamental message of Jesus. And during that time, I started volunteering with recently arrived refugee families in our city of Portland because I wanted to practice on them before I went overseas for real this is like terrible this is so terrible this is totally my mindset this is like the conquistador mindset from my history textbooks coming out on me and at the same time it did transform my life so i don't think i had i had mixed motives at best but i ended up meeting some families who are somali bantu and becoming just really enmeshed in their lives sort of being adopted into this tight-knit community and you know i tried to evangelize them and it all failed horribly um and they were still kind to me and still extended relationship to me and after doing that for a few years when i went back and read this passage in luke 4 i had this like electrifying Mm. moment and it was jesus is good news for my friends wow like daniel uh, our standard second question is uh whether scripture is something that propped the world up as it is for you or turned the world upside down hence in verse hence Mm-hmm. what is the kingdom of God? Hence, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, how would you answer that question re- reflecting back on, because I, I think p- particularly for listeners outside of um, that small geographical space, just South of Canada and North of Mexico, um, your story is, you know, it, it's so culturally particular, Like there, yeah. there are things you're sharing that is like, wow, that's a whole, I almost think it's miraculous that you're still a Christian given, I mean, all of that, like um, if, if that's your default setting. So in the midst of that being the kind of default, how would you respond to the question, was it something that propped the world up as it is or turned the world upside down? I actually think that's a really difficult question for me mm. to answer because, you know, as I write in books and articles there's a sense of like, I'm betraying my community and, you know, wow. actually my family, right? This is really personal. This is how my parents wow. raised me. Like my dad is yeah. still a pastor. Yeah. They read my writing. Um, and so it, it is. And, and so what do they think of your writing? Um, my mom is reading my book right now. She loves it. And my dad, he, when I told him what the second book was going to be, he just said, I hope you're not writing a, a pro-socialist book. So Oh. Because socialism is bad. Yeah, that, that would bad. be the worst case scenario. Apparently, <laughs> right? I know. <laughs> so, and, yeah. And to, to dig a little bit more, um, what? How would your dad, like, if if he was on Jeopardy and said, "What is socialism?" What is the question that provokes <laughs> that answer? You know, I think that he's been really discipled by American. Uh, Republican talk radio for I would say decades and decades wow. and so it's it's a lot just a volume of pro-capitalism which has to work by being anti-socialism and so I think you know giving him sort of a benefit of the doubt would probably be you know he's thinking of Russia and people starving to death because of abuses of power within a socialist government framework that's so my best socialism guess. doesn't equal you know um, m- most of the developed world, like, uh, but instead equals authoritarian communism. Yes, right. exactly. Right. Wow. And Drew, Drew, do you get the sense that's how a lot of people 
I mean, that's yeah. just the rhetoric. That's just yeah. a part of the rhetoric and conversation in, in mainstream America. It's just always present. I mean, that's why people are have been reacting so strongly to Bernie Sanders is even people who like his policies are like, oh, I don't know if you can talk about being a democratic socialist, right? I mean, yeah. that's just how caustic it is because of how the nature of the conversation has been controlled and dictated by elites who've been pro-capitalist. I mean, that's just so deeply embedded and entrenched wow. in the ideology of the United States. So, so talking Russell Crowe, right? Um, we were talking about Friends Will Romp, the punk band, uh, which was provoked by your book and uh, that um, beautiful scene where you talk about um, Christians can be punk rockers too <laughs> at the age of 13 in, in your little band. And you're at a DC Talk concert. Is that right? Yeah, it was a Billy Graham crusade and DC Talk was the opener. Yeah. Opener. Wow. Yeah. And um, I, I was sharing with Drew the punk music I was listening to at the same age, an Australian band named Friends Will Romp, which I saw live seven times in high school. Um, and they have a song about Russell Crowe. Here's the very awkward segue. Do you remember when Les Mis came out? Um, the, the film? Yeah. Uh, yeah. With, with, with a couple of... Aussies in starring roles. I wrote this article for Red Letter Christians about um, uh, Les Mis and uh, Martin King's Socialism of Grace. Mm. And I remember Scott McKnight writing to me and saying, Jared, like, you can't use that term in America. Mm. Like, socialism, you can't talk. So I, I guess this, when did the movie come out? 2012, something like that? Yeah. Um, so it's been fascinating. I, I wrote back to um, Scott during your last election. And I was like, well, you had Bernie Sanders running and he's using the term. Right. Um, but what you're saying, Danielle, is what Scott was hinting at, that the term is just so low, like Christian socialism or the fact that Martin Luther King called himself a Christian democratic socialist it is just but culturally even, something that even is incredibly King threatening, right? often tried to use other words and to describe what he was talking about more than actually use the language directly. Yeah. Because he knew the landscape, right? I mean, I think that that's, though I will say, I mean, it, there's no question that since Occupy Wall Street and then Bernie Sanders, that the conversation is shifting. And so it's becoming much more prevalent. I mean, I think that in some ways, what we see now is the changing landscape that over time, it is becoming more acceptable, right? Um, but it still has a stigma that hasn't completely disappeared yet. Yeah, and I think it's just been really politicized. And I actually am not interested in, you know, saying I'm a socialist or anything. I'm really interested in asking people like my dad, but mostly myself, what is this thing within me that rises up to be like, wait a minute, I've worked hard for what I have. Like, are you saying other people are going to get a free rider? You know, that's like such a unique American response. And I think that's really the fear that comes up for people when we talk about healthcare for all. It's like, wait a minute. I have the scarcity mindset. There's only so much to go mm. around. I work really hard to get mine. Are all these freeloaders going to get it? I mean, it's terrible, but that's that's something that is really ingrained within us. And so that's kind of like the second part of Luke 4, I just, first I thought it was like such good news to my neighbors, right? And because mm. they were people who were poor, they were people who had been in prison, people who experienced like physical trauma on their bodies, you know, being refugees. And there were people who had been oppressed. And I just thought that is who Jesus is for. And then I would say a couple of years ago, just kind of playing around with the text, I decided to just 
experiment with like, well, what's the opposite of those spaces, yeah. right? Yeah, and that's so, powerful, right? Because again, I, I kept seeing myself in the religious leaders with Jesus. And um, since I really, really wanted to know where Jesus was at work in the world, it seemed like he was telling us in this passage. So I just thought, you know, like, what's the opposite of poor? It's the rich. What's the opposite of people in prison? It's people who are free or who mm. have autonomy. You know, what's the opposite of people experiencing blindness? And so that one I sort of thought about maybe wellness or safety. And then the last one would be the oppressed and the opposite of the oppressed are oppressors people who have hmm. power and I just thought about those four values and how like everything in my life including my church and my bible college was encouraged me on a path towards those values but if you look at this passage it seemed clear to me that that's kind of moving in the opposite direction of Jesus and so huh. I just started like thinking about these values all the time and in some ways it's easier for me because of my um, experiences with refugees, I, I went to school and got my master's in teaching English to speakers of other languages, and I specialize mm. in literacy. And so I teach mostly women who were denied access to education in their own countries. And these are, if you're non-literate in this day and age, like trauma is absolutely the reason why. So either the trauma of poverty, yeah. gender-based violence, of disruption due to war, all this stuff. So, so I've been surrounded by these particular women for the past 10 years. And it's, it's really allowed me to, I think, recognize how opposite the values are that I have been told to pursue by everybody around me. And, that, and that's what goes back to your question, Jared. It's just the church has propped up those same values for me. And yet at the yeah, same time, wow. the church introduced me to Jesus. The church introduced me to the scriptures. The church you know, said, hey, maybe you should go out and try and help people while you can't, you know, and I'm not saying the charity framework or anything is even all that great, but it did propel me out into the world in some, some way. So it's, I feel like it's kind of complicated. That remind yeah. me of, um, what's it, uh, Jorg Rigers, his um, Christ and Empire, like just the mm. idea that no matter how oppressive and dominating an empire kind of loaded a theology can be, like it can't ever fully suppress Jesus, right? Mm. And so mm. there's a danger that Jesus is still there and liberative nonetheless, right? And, and so what I hear is that even in the midst of this kind of empire reading of the texts, you know, you, you're encountering Jesus and there's always that liberative potential that exists because of that, right? I mean, yeah. is, is that mm. fair to... Yeah, and I... I don't know if we want to keep going because the end of the passage is really important to me. And maybe that's, yeah, we'll get, yeah, you play. You can, you can, kind of, it kind of gets into this too. Yeah. Of, well, before yeah, you get yeah. into that, can you, yeah. so one thing that we're, we're interested in is thinking about your, um, your own experience, right. And this journey that you've been on um, and thinking about like, what would you want to, as, as you think about your own ways of reading the Bible in ways that now turn the Bible upside down, that flip the world upside down, um, what would you, what would be your gift to others that you'd want to share in terms of just how you engage and read the text? Yeah, I think maybe I have a few thoughts towards that. One is uh, being raised an evangelical in the U.S., we were very into biblicism. And so the Bible is literal. Um, the Bible is like the most important text. And I think 
being in relationship with people who are non-literate has actually been really important for me to take a step back from mm. recognizing God operates in ways outside of the text mm-hmm. and uh, kind of recognizing biblicism being a particular idol among white evangelicals. Um, mm. So kind of taking a little bit of a step back from the ways I, I used to approach the Bible. And then, you know, I've had some really transformative experiences of being able to read the Bible with people who had never read it before. And that's been so powerful for me to just see how God shows up, how the Holy spirit is present. Cause you know, you're supposed to believe all that when you grow up Christian. (laughs) (laughs) And then sometimes you're like, wait, do I actually believe all that? And then I think the other thing I would say is maybe a gift I can offer is if people come from a similar background like me, where maybe you want to, you wanted to change the world. Maybe you wanted to save the world. Maybe you wanted to be a missionary or just be a radical. I don't, I don't know. I really was raised with a bit of this American exceptionalism, this superiority complex, which is really linked to power and, and I find really problematic now. Um, what happened to me was I would you know, go into these apartments of my refugee friends, sit there for hours, and hmm. you know, I would be given food, I would be in relationship, I would go there week after week, and I had this burden on my shoulders. Like I was supposed to be going in there and bringing Jesus with me, and I showed the Jesus film, and I tried to talk about Jesus as much <laughs> wow. as I could, and it was always just like, that's great for you, we're Muslims, and we're always going to be, and, you know. and I just kept feeling like, oh, I'm failing here, but I started to have these experiences that I could not articulate to anybody. And the experience was I would go into these places being like, ah, I have to bring Jesus in here with me. And instead when I was in there, like I experienced Jesus with my friends. I'm just getting these goosebumps just talking about it now. It's like, God was there and God Mm. loved them so much. And they, and again, these are complicated people. I'm not making out like they're angels because they're not. They're yeah, complicated, just, just like as complicated. Us. I am, yeah. yeah, yeah. But the presence of God was there. And then what was so hard is I could not share that with anyone. There was no framework mm. within white evangelicalism for me to go back and say, Wow. I met Jesus there. Yeah. And so that's been something I've just had to hold on to in my own testimony. Mm. That would be like my conversion moment. And it wasn't until I was reading Dorothy Day that I was like, Oh mm-hmm. my gosh, like this happens to other people. Um, you, you actually experience Jesus when you're with other people. And in particular, yeah. for my experience, you know, it's been people who have been very marginalized in my, in my city and in my neighborhood. I've experienced yeah. God there and not in the churches, not in the Bible colleges, but it was a little bit lonely for a while. Cause I was like, I can't, I can't tell anybody this. Who would oh, believe wow. me? You know? Wow. Yeah. That's, that's heartbreaking. And yet for, for people who prize the Bible so much, your, your experience, I mean, it's what happens when um, Matthew 28 isn't held with Matthew 25. Because right. what, what you're describing is like uh, amongst those who were hungry and thirsty and imprisoned and the stranger, Jesus promises to be there, right? Like, um, uh, Surely, surely that's part of the part of the deal. Okay, here's but, the deal. I wrote about that passage for a prominent Christian evangelical magazine in America, and they said that passage only applies to other Christians. It does not apply to anybody outside the fold. Like this is the thing about biblicists is they will just like 
Drew is like nodding his head. Drew, I think you know what I'm talking about. Because I've heard people say that, right? And so I think it's it's such a fascinating okay, world. They're so obsessed start with the there. Bible. Yeah. Uh, let, let's start there, and let's start with our sisters and brothers who are refugees. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's start with our sisters and brothers who, um, are, you know, particularly in the US, like your diabolical um, prison industrial complex. Like, right. uh, let's start with. That's the irony, right? Because what right. I so like beautifully hear you actually making plain is that this is actually about a people group seeking coercive power and using the scriptures in such a way that actually um, fortifies um, how do we uh, keep a fortress that keeps Jesus out, right? right? Like, yeah. <laughs> that's. So it's been the big heartbreak of my life and I think it will yeah. continue to be. And that's, that's the thing is like, how do we keep doing this knowing it's going to keep breaking our hearts because it's mm. so entrenched. Um, yeah. 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 I also um, really hear uh, not just the power of encountering Christ in um, those who clearly um, don't uh, claim to be Christian, but the power of, um, reading the scriptures with those who also aren't Christian? Yeah, I mean, it's been an interesting experience and one that has illuminated a little bit of, well, I've had, I haven't had like tons of experiences, but a few times just with new people who want to explore the scriptures yeah. and just seeing how God speaks to them. And then the other is, um, you know, trying to read the scriptures and, and read the holy books of people who are Muslim has yeah. been really fascinating. And, and I now just try and tell people um, I'm just someone who really wants to follow God. That's just orienting my life. That's what mm. I want to do. And so now, especially a lot of my students who are also my neighbors, so we're, we're, we're friends, you know, they'll always say like, you're this close to being a Muslim. Just say this one prayer and then you're with us. And we're so excited because you love God. We love God. And, and I'm like, wait, I was supposed to say that to you. Like you're supposed to say this one prayer and then you're in it. And then we kind of laugh and, you know, but they do see me as someone who really wants to follow God. And, yeah. and even if we're not able to read the scriptures together, we can orient our lives around what does it mean to follow God right here, right now. And, and therefore I have more community with my Muslim neighbors yeah. than I do the majority of, of Christians um, in my city and in, in my life. Not to say that, all Christians are bad or anything like that. I don't want to say that, but I've just been really struck by this community, the spiritual community we do have as yeah. we yeah. try and live life in our neighborhood together. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. That, that's beautiful. Daniel, I, um, you were sharing about pushback from uh, a particular Christian magazine. I don't know if you know um, some of the parallels in our journey that uh, I've lived the last 16 years um, under the same roof with, recently arrived asylum seekers and refugees. And I was asked to um, speak at an apologetics conference um, on reaching Muslims. Uh, And it's because in a two-year period, um, the the church I was pastoring at the time, we saw over 60 people from Muslim backgrounds um, come to Christ. And uh, so I... They were like, so what's your method? Uh, what's the material you use? Um, and I'm like, we, we love and serve people because Christ loves and serves us. And then when they ask, we're unashamed and 
not backwards and coming forwards about the hope that we have. And uh, then to help me be a better follower of Jesus and then be better Muslims, uh, we, we read the Injils, we read the Gospels, mm-hmm. um, and we read it together. And then we allow space for the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit would do. So to do that, we can't coercively convert each other and just mm-hmm. actually allow. And they're like, no, 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 but what's, what's the method? What's the... And I'm like, if you want to see... Muslims come to Christ, go and serve your Muslim neighbours regardless of, like, regardless of their faith or um, background or don't have a secret agenda or whatever. And they were so angry. Like there, there was actual, there was anger that, um, uh, no, 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 we, we need you to be. So from one side it got, um, oh, you're doing all this refugee rights stuff because secretly you just want to convert people, you're mm-hmm. proselytising. And on the other side it's like you're not serious about the gospel. This is about like a social agenda um, of, of like yeah. including Muslims. And So I want to encourage you and say I think that's like that's the place to be, right? Like that's, that's the real stuff. And I can hear in your humility in the journey uh, and the gift that you're inviting people into, even in terms of the hermeneutic of, of how to read scripture, is stay in that place where you're, you're open and vulnerable, where the spirit has space to move, because there isn't the coercion of like a particular agenda. That's a beautiful thing. It is, but it is scary when you get your self-worth from achieving or all that. So it's huh. been quite the journey of... Um, just who who is my identity right if i'm not achieving great things for god because that's a wow. little bit of that triumphalism right that is a hallmark yeah. of american christianity as well it's this if you are serving god good things will happen people will convert you know and um wow. this doesn't happen for me but i i have like more faith in a good god than i ever yeah. did before so it's a little confusing but that's where yeah, i yeah. am that's good. daniel before we pivot um uh, to the text and uh, allow you to, to walk us around. Um, can I ask a very personal Enneagram question, if you're oh. willing to reveal? <laughs> yes, that's fine. Um, where do you identify on the Enneagram? Uh, as a one. Huh. And I thought I was a four for a very long time because I'm like very emotional and very, I despair about the world a lot. And um then my husband was like, I want you to listen to this thing. And so I did. It was about this, the inner self-critic of an Enneagram one. And it's just mm. how everybody has that person telling them all the time that they're horrible and they need to try harder and do more. And, blah. and he was like, no, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, that's not how everybody lives their wow. life. And so I would say I'm not like my house is pretty messy. I'm not like a perfectionist that way, but I am like an ethical perfectionist. Like I'm always obsessing about like, what's the right thing to do and how can we do this in the world and, and all that. Um, and do you think that's an important cultural, like, is that something you've picked up in the air in the particular type of white evangelicalism that you've experienced in North America? To be good or do things? All yeah, that yeah, yeah. Like um, that pressure to succeed. And I just found I, that quite striking. I think so. But I, I also was raised in a denomination where women were not allowed to be ordained and wow. um, really had no access to power. And I was a really like intense kid. You know, I'm an intense person now. And so really the only path for a strong willed 
woman is to be a missionary in that context, which is really sexist and really racist. And wow. uh, so I think that's why I sort of gravitated towards that life. And then the perk is, you know, missionaries are like spiritually elite. So I think it was a combination of factors. <laughs> if you're going to, if you got, if you want to, if you want to be good in God's eyes, why not try and go all the way to the top? Right. It's, so, right. <laughs> it's terrible. It's terrible. Yeah. I don't know if Drew wants to say anything here. You probably know the listeners more. And if they have just totally lost them with my no, deep in the woods, American evangelicalness. I think they'll appreciate your journey and um, your transparency, being very honest and raw about, you know, where you've come from and able to joke about it as well as wrestle. And I mean, even in your book, I mean, I feel like it's so much of it is you giving voice to this journey that you've been on and and really pushing back at yourself. And I mean, it's not just, I mean, I, I appreciate your capacity to not only critique in general, but also to critique yourself and to struggle, yeah. right? And stretch and pull. And so it's not everybody else out there has got the problem, right? But you're constantly um, seeking for your own transformation, which is, I think, powerful. Yeah. Yeah, really powerful. Well, thanks for reading it. <laughs> yeah. Daniel, would you walk us around the text? Well, I feel like I kind of did the the more famous part already, talking about Jesus, you know, reading from the scroll of Isaiah in Isaiah 58. And I'm sh- I want to know what Richard Rohr said about it. Can you sum it up? <laughs> you, you'll have to go back and listen to the episode. Oh, okay. That's a, that's a good word. Yeah, I think that you know, reading it a few different ways. One way after being in a relationship with people who fit those categories just illuminated the text for me. Then the Mm -hmm. other way is just playing around and seeing, again, trying to locate where I am based off of my background, the power differentials, my educational background, um, and just really making it applicable to my actual life was really important to me. And so that's Mm -hmm. where this book, The Myth of the American Dream, came out of is basically just thinking about what it's like when you are trying to pursue places that are opposite of where Jesus said he was going to be. But I really wanted to talk about the end part with you guys. Mm, Yeah, please do. I I think that, um, you know, the listeners in the temple, they are totally tracking with Jesus. That was like a popular passage, but then Jesus leaves off one verse, right? Right. Exactly. And okay, Drew, what was the verse? Well, I forget exactly, but it's the, vengeance, the day of right? vengeance to the of nations, our Lord. Right, right? Yeah, so it says like to announce the oh, year. Would I get a crown for that answer? Yes, would but I you get, get <laughs> you get one jewel in that crown. And right. a sticker, oh. probably right. Yes, I, I feel like I missed out. My goodness, <laughs> you did not. Let me tell you. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so Jesus leaves off the the part about vengeance. So jubilee, but no vengeance, right? right. And so obviously the crowd would probably have noticed that, but they were still like, this guy is awesome. And his, what he said is amazing. And I can't believe he's Joseph's son and, and all this. Um, and then like the crowd turns on him just a few verses later. And I think I never really spent too much time thinking about that, but just a few verses later, they're basically trying to kill him. Like the first crucifixion yeah. attempt, right? They're trying to throw him off. And I was like, wow, as, as somebody who grew up, 
like, oh my gosh, we talked about the cross all the time. You would think these other attempts on Jesus' life would be like important, but I never heard a sermon on that ever. And they're all and over the place, right? That's I know. The thing. They're yeah. always trying to kill Jesus. They're always well, trying to kill Jesus. And again, who's trying to kill Jesus? It's the good people. Like the good yeah. people who are at the synagogue <laughs> to hear the scriptures. They're the ones who try and kill Jesus. So I wonder if that's why we'd ever talk about it in, in places that are obsessed with the Bible. Um, <laughs> so, so the thing that turns the crowd, I just think is so fascinating. Yeah. And uh, Jared, I'm sure you have some insight into this and because of your life and your experiences, um, I, I'm not a biblical scholar, but when I read it, I see Jesus saying um, he basically elevates the stories of two people who are outsiders mm-hmm. and says God was with them and God worked in them. And the widow of Zarephath. And Naaman was like a horrible person and you know did all this stuff too. And yeah. and basically Jesus, you know, for you know, forgot I'm doing air quotes to say the thing about God's vengeance and then lifts up these two examples of outsiders and foreigners and says, this is where God is working. And uh, that made and people Daniel, so mad if, they wanted if, to kill him. If, if we were to ask, um, uh, given the, the particular subculture you were raised in, if Jesus was preaching this in uh, the church that you grew up with, and then started to um, outwork it. Who are the people that he would lift up? Yeah, I mean, my mind first goes to, you know, non-literate Muslim women in my wow. neighborhood. And yeah, I do write about this in, in my book a little bit about particularly Islamophobia that can show up in Christian missions and, and how that has played yeah. out in our culture. Um. Yeah, but honestly, there's like so many people that could be in that category <laughs> that would be offensive to someone who was raised to believe they're in the straight and narrow pathway to be told mm-hmm. that actually God is moving, not in this tiny little slice, but way beyond our concept of where, where God is moving. And I just mm-hmm. think to myself, again, reading that passage, just like, if I'm being honest, if I was back in that day... I would, I would be really upset and I would be firmly in that crowd that would find Jesus's message of who God really was to be so threatening to my sense of self and my culture, my power, that I would need him to be removed from my life. Yeah. And like, I really think if, if we haven't been to a stage where we want to push Jesus off a hill, maybe we haven't taken him seriously. That's true. I mean... I think the other part that we can look at, and this is like a, maybe a hermeneutic I, I try and use more often now is we always, you know, growing up a Christian, I always heard the good news of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, the good news of Jesus. Well, I think the gospels are full of the bad news of Jesus and people yeah. <laughs> reacting to Jesus as if what he's saying is really bad news because it is, it's bad news for their economic system that is built yeah. on exploiting other people. It's bad news for people who want to say that women don't matter. It's ba- you know, it is definitely yeah. bad news to people and we need to be paying way more attention to that in the gospels. And if we come from a dominant culture to be able to see that in our, in ourselves, right. it's not very fun. It's not really like churches don't like it when you go there and, and talk about 
paying attention to the bad news because it's it's still just as challenging today. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, uh, I, I think, think we've got a podcast uh, title, Drew. The bad news of Jesus. <laughs> bad news of Jesus. Hey. That's awesome. I think, that, I think that'll run, right? Yeah. No. But but it is, I mean, it's only good news if you buy into the vision that Jesus is mm. casting, right? This dream that he has for That's humanity. Right. It's only good news if you buy. But I think that people want to jump and just assume that it's good news for them um, while also then remaining in, you know, keeping the status quo of the world as it is. So I, let me have everything I have and somehow it's, which, you know, works for American evangelicalism because it's an escapist, right? So it doesn't actually have to disrupt this world, right? The the mountains and the hills and the valleys, and none, none of that, there's no leveling that needs to happen here and now. So that's, that's for another time. It's not for the presence, yeah. right? And so I think that, um, but I mean, it's clear all through the gospels that Jesus's message on one, it is universal in the, in the broadest sense of it, but it's not universal in terms of its implications for different people, right? right. Um, that's why Jesus actually says, which I never hear in evangelical circles, right? Good news to the poor. Like you just don't hear yes. that language, that phrase yeah. that Jesus like, loves to yeah. use, right? You don't find that actually, that's, that's an offensive term that you can't preach in evangelical, many white American evangelical churches, right? If you say good news to the poor, uh, people... Either they're going to be upset that you mentioned poor or they're going to try to spiritualize it and just talk oh, yeah. about the poor. The poor uh, well, we're all poor in spirit. So, and then, <laughs> and then move on from there. Yeah. And all three of those qualifiers are important to say, like white American evangelical, because uh, if you spend time uh, in the UK, uh, people forget that there's this whole history of evangelicalism Mm. I mean, it's an American history as well. It's just been forgotten. Yeah. That doesn't look like that. That is uh, more holistic. Um, and even though it's not what has formed me, I always feel bad for um, uh, friends who are evangelical, just of not, not of that variety, who are like, hang on a second, why do I get thrown in <laughs> with all the white American, like, uh, homeschooling um, pro-guns, pro-prisons, pro-death penalty, anti-poor, um, pro-war, you know, like all that kind of, um, it, it, it is, there is more diversity there. It's just one of those words that has been completely ruined for, for so many people. Right. The text explicitly says that people were furious. Right. Have, have there been times in, in your ministry, Danielle, where, um, the Jesus-iness of, cause really what we're talking here is, um, Jesus picks up, uh, enemies and holds them up and says god's love extends mm -hmm. to them not only isn't there vengeance for our enemies but there is actually um inclusion grace and all the promises are open to them as well as you made so clear uh th this is questions of identity and when identity is threatened um people often get furious how are you walking in your ministry with those tensions knowing that um uh, you also deeply love people from the same background as you, um, that this isn't writing off a whole heap of people. You know that these are good people, how they've um, come to the conclusions they've come because of the so socialization that they've had. How do you walk in um, those tensions? Yeah, I don't think I'm doing it well. I just think that I wanted to, be a missionary for so long and now I'm just like trying to convert 
my people, you know, to yeah. a more expansive view of maybe what God is doing in the world. And I still feel like such a failure. And I think looking at history, looking at the wider Christian church, all these things are really helpful to me and hopeful. And like many people, you know, trying to find some solace in liturgy, knowing that so many people yeah. are praying the same prayers. Um, this is not something that's solely on my shoulders uh, hmm. to bear, but that I'm just one little person. And there's so many other people out there just trying to follow God and um, being transformed by Jesus. I do. I will say that it gets really exhausting to yeah. just argue about Jesus with people that talk about Jesus all the time. And mm. it's really hard. And I think that's why I turned to writing essays because you can be a little bit weirder. You can be a little bit more exploratory. I don't want to say I have all the answers, but I've had some deep experiences with a Jesus who is still present working in the world and this kingdom that is so yeah. good. Mm. And I just don't see hardly any signs of it in my neighborhood. Like we are not doing well. And now we are doing even worse because of this global pandemic. Um, but I, I do feel like I am a part of a tradition that at its core says that God is good and God is present. Mm. And God loves us. And I just need to be reminded of that all the time, it, which again, it strikes me as so funny because I just heard that so much growing up and I still feel like I have such a hard time believing it. Um, but yeah, I, I would say that from, for a while I was really focused on writing to uh, evangelicals and um, I've, I've stepped back a little bit from that just for self-care. <laughs> right. And right. I don't know if you've experienced this too, but also... Um, Living in my neighborhood and doing the work that I do, there is a, there is a bit of bridge building work and, um, you know, working with volunteers and asking for resources. And that also actually just really drains me. And so um, I helped start like a nonprofit. And then I basically just the past year or two was like, I'm just going to really focus on just my neighborhood and just my people. And, and so, um, yeah, maybe it's just all these taking my little steps backward from trying to do everything and save everybody just getting smaller and smaller with, with what I'm doing and, and how I see Jesus. Do you, do you know, what's really helpful uh, on that whole, um, the finances, local neighborhood kind of stuff. What? Democratic socialism people <laughs> <laughs> get some healthcare, get some, like, I, I kid you not like, I'm sorry, cheap shot. Um, uh, it's right. But it, it also is just like it, during this pandemic, like one of my big prayers for the U S is that um, there could be a collective decency where grace is not merely seen as uh, an experience for my heart, but is seen as a social reality. Mm. And um, you don't have to use the word democratic <laughs> or socialism to talk about that, but whatever an economics of grace, that means that everybody has access to healthcare right. um, where education is not a privilege. If you make it into the middle class, because you manage to avoid um, a, a serious accident or something like that, because you have medical bills that will knock a whole generation out of uh, that's, that's my hope that um, 
we're in this strange moment where uh, we're seeing uh, governments respond and the systems that don't work are actually being revealed to not work. Oh, yeah. And wouldn't it be beautiful if um, uh, God's people could hold a vision of grace that was open not just for me and mine, but for the widows of that lot out there that Jesus has just been talking about and that God wants to heal them. This is the moment, right? I mean, I I think that I wrote the myth of the American dream, like in the past two years. And now it's just like, well, now it's all being very exposed. All of these, you know, I think our own governor in Oregon said the cracks in our system are being revealed to be canyons. Right. Right. And like for, for me in our neighborhood, our, our kids have been out of school for like three and a half weeks and we have received no information from the teachers or the district, no school at home, right. nothing of that. Wow. And, um, Same thing. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. And really so, Drew. Oh my goodness. Yeah, and so I just saw on Twitter, someone was saying like a lot of school districts are doing all this online education, but right. like not everybody in our neighborhood, I would say most people don't have right. Wi-Fi. The right. They don't have access, access to things. And so, so right. they're like, if schools are going to require online learning, then internet should be free for everybody. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so true. And I would never, never once would have crossed my mind. But it's like, yes, if, if people need this to do education, then it should be free and available to all. That is not how Americans operate. But right. that is how we, the reality is, therefore, my neighborhood, we're left on our own. Like, we're going to be left on our right. own for months and months and months with our right. kids. And so, I mean, I, I, from reading your book, I imagine that your neighbor over, I mean, I imagine my neighborhood, our city is majority black and brown, slightly different in terms of percentages, but in terms of the specific neighborhood that you live in, um, when you look at the economic um, disadvantages that these school districts already have, right. um, it gets exasperated, right, in these moments yeah. where these suburban school districts, they're running and ready to go, right, with programmings and the pamphlets kids have and things. And Every iPads. kid has an right, iPad, right. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And meanwhile, you know, a lot of our kids just don't even have access to internet, nonetheless, yeah. you know, other opportunities. And their parents are trying to figure out how to work and have, you know, yeah. take care of their kids. I mean, it's just, and so the dynamics are just completely different for different communities. And yeah. on, it is this moment, right? It is, a, you could say it's a, this could be our Kairos moment, right? A season where yeah. a meaningful change could happen right now. Um, it's not going to be spurred on by our national leadership. Um, mm-hmm. We already see what chaos is going on from that vantage point. So it's going to have to be sparked from other places if we're going to have some kind of meaningful dialogue. But it's clear. I mean, it's, things are unveiled. It's the, the curtain has been pulled back. Um, and so we can either take advantage of this moment um, and figure out, you know, what's our path towards greater shalom and more flourishing for our neighbors, or we can go back to, you know, the way things have always mm. been. But it might require a few of us risking getting pushed off some hills. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But, but in that, I think part of the, the like, incredible thing about this text is Jesus at no point doesn't say, this isn't also for you. And, right. and what is it to, to not shut people out but let other people in in such ways that, like, <laughs> here's the bad news to, to, to use um, your phrase, uh, for them as well. That's right. the bad news. Like, as much as God loves you, God loves your enemies. 
<laughs> and, and I was even um, struck, Daniel, as you were talking about the things that you grew up hearing, that God is good, that God is present, um, uh, that uh, God is loving. I mean, they're things that all our Muslim neighbors would also say. Right. Like there's none of that. Um, so what's the Arabic, uh, the 99 beautiful names? Is it uh, El-Wahid um, for, or El, no, El-Gafar is uh, God is forgiving. Um, I mean, none of those beautiful assertions uh, go to the heart of God is like Jesus. Mm. <laughs> um, they're, they're just um, uh, the best default monotheism settings. Uh, what this tradition asks of a God all-powerful is revealed at Calvary to be all-vulnerable. Mm. And so there is no coercion anymore. And what is it to be invited into not religious games of in and out, um, but actually uh, if God does look like the love revealed in Christ Jesus, what does it look like to include others and let that not just be our spiritual vision or personal vision, but social and ecological vision as well. And our world at this time means people who are prepared to get pushed off hills because it says, because they're prepared to say for them too, not just for me, not just my side of town, not just people who look like me from same backgrounds as me, but for them as well. And I think this is like a phenomenal moment for just that. So I'm really glad your book is coming out at this time. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask you a quick question? No. I'm really curious. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just really curious about, uh, so, you know, I obviously am coming from an American experience. So is Drew. Is this about kangaroos? No, but it Koalas. is about, it is about Spiders? Australia because I wonder if Christians ever had cultural power in Australia and, um, you know, how that would then interact with what it means to be a Christ follower in Australia. So, like, when I was in England yeah, over the summer question. at Cambridge, it was, like, yep. wild to be in these centuries-old buildings that are totally empty and all these prayer books that are, like, older than America itself, and yet nobody's going to these churches. It, it was just like, okay, this is where America's heading, and we are just tooth and nailing it you know we're just clawing at anything we can to retain cultural power so i'm really curious in how a place like australia maybe does intersect with these issues of power because again when i think about the cross of jesus it was so over spiritualized growing up and it's all about me needing to feel as an individual guilty and shamed that my personal sin nailed him to the tree and i'm not saying all that's bad because i think it's a part of it but really a cross is a tool of the roman empire that's right put up a visible decaying sign of what happens when you cross empire right Right? and so billboards with a body you you know and just thinking no 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 church service prepared me for that exactly (laughs) uh you know yeah well but anyways i want to know what australia is like uh uh, we're a different kind of fallen, um, so um, it, a different kind of depravity. But to, to spell out some of our differences is that um, the Australian experiences, um, none of us were Puritans seeking a new promised land, a, a city upon a hill, um, while we burned the women and children while the men are off hunting of the land we've just stolen. Um, but uh, enough about that particular story um so australian we were either colonized 
convicts or immigrants. So uh, we uh, had had um, a different definition of whiteness until the Second World War, which is a particular story in itself. Um, uh, but the, the history of genocide in Australia of um, First Nations people, and you probably can't quite see, but there's, there's a map of all, over the 400 different uh, people group, over 300 different language groups. Um, so uh, Australia is a myth that has been concreted, cemented, as you lot would say, uh, over the top of um, the world's most ancient civilizations. And because we come not as Puritans, but as colonized, colonizers or convicts, there is a very different way of relating to religion, mm. like institution. So um, we don't relate uh, to religion as um, ours. The, the person who was uh, the magistrate or the judge during the week was often in the pulpit on a Sunday in the early British colonies on this ancient land that we now refer to as Australia. And so you have communities um, that have 80,000 years of traditions, um, mm. uh, living cultures, it is some of the oldest civilizations in the world. And this whole kind of hunter-gatherer kind of mythology, uh, there's brilliant, if you want to listen to a really powerful book before you come and visit, that's an open invitation. Um, uh, there's... Maybe I'll include a reading list, but um, there's some incredible books about uh, how farming techniques, um, uh, that this was a, a very advanced society, but it was a society that uh, did so working with creation instead of against mm. it. And so the how white supremacy expresses itself in Australia, um, part of the reason why Australia doesn't have the same allergic reaction to socialism is because we didn't have 1950s McCarthyism, the Reds under the bed kind of stuff in the US. Um, but we also, uh, Australia was established as a utopia in 1901 um, of equality. And so even the way that we talk, like think, um, g'day mate, this kind of informal kind of, that actually reveals something about what makes us tick. So Australians look at the person on the side of the road doing it tough who is homeless and say, if my life goes wrong, that could be me. Americans look at the person at the top who's achieved it all and say, if my life goes right, that could be me. <laughs> and that's the difference between like wow. how, how our cultures have formed us differently. Wow. But the, the, the shadow side of... Um, Australia's like established as a utopia of equality is that in the first week of parliament, a law was passed uh, called white Australia policy and white Australia policy was passed um, to ensure that the quote unquote lesser races did not get in the way of this uh, um, utopia of equality. So um, uh there are some of the differences in how, um, so yes, we're one of the first, the second nation in the world to give women the vote um, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, a, a whole bunch of progressive things. Australia was first, but it was a deeply white supremacist project. 
um, uh, that was inherited from British colonisation. And so Australian Christianity expresses itself very differently. So if, um, if you read Tim Winton, who's one of um, our most respected kind of authors, um, the way that he talks about um, Christianity is there's something in the Australian psyche that is anti-institutional, um, uh, that is egalitarian, um, but is also deeply racist, misogynistic, um, uh, anti-intellectual. Um, and like, I'm a first generation Australian. Um, my dad migrated in 1972 and my dad was a union organiser. So when he left the monastery, he was a part of and migrated to Australia. Um, uh, from Ireland, uh, he had, was trained as a nurse. And so the um, uh, working class, um, uh, a Catholic social ethic, that kind of mm. stuff has all been part of my upbringing. My mum's side of the family are Russian Jews. So both sides being Irish Catholic and Russian Jews, my family has only recently fit into the Australian definition of whiteness um, uh, and so the, the the kind of complexities of of that as well. But this is why telling stories um, is so important and understanding where people come yeah. uh, to this kind of stuff because um, uh, if you were to talk to some other Australians, they might give you some answers which um, because they haven't... But when you're at the centre, you ask very few questions mm. around why are people on the margins... Mm. And so that's been some of my experience. How, how's that for like a three minute summary? I loved it. I found it all fascinating. And I kind of want to ask, I don't want to put Drew on the spot, but if you wanted to talk also a little bit about yeah, your please. culture and context, because you, Daniel, I'm so glad you did. Cause I was about to do it. Okay. Thank sorry. You. But I'm like, I want Drew no, to no, now jump in. share. Yeah. I mean, so I, I live in Harrisburg. Well, so I'm originally Philly, Harrisburg, Philly, Harrisburg, but, um, but Harrisburg is about 50% black, 30% Latino. And then there's, there are a lot of different immigrant groups, but the next largest would be white um, beyond that. Um, the church situation in Harrisburg is interesting. Um, it was, so when I moved, this is my second time living in Harrisburg. I lived there for three and a half years before that. And um, and before I was at a multiracial Anabaptist church, and now I'm at a different multiracial Anabaptist church here in Harrisburg. <laughs> uh, but that wasn't the plan. And, and ironically, like we um, visited about 10 different black churches here in Harrisburg first, because uh, that's what we were going to. We, I vote in Philly, we went to black Baptist churches, you know, but that meant there was a wide range in terms of what that meant there. Um, I feel like it's a little bit narrow in terms of what that actually means here in Harrisburg in terms of the expression and understanding of what Baptist means here. I'm not, mm -hmm. and granted, we haven't been to every single black Baptist church. So there's a lot of church we haven't visited. Um, but nonetheless, um, yeah, it's been an interesting journey to think through um, how the church, the church's kind of place in our society, in our community, and the different ways that like what's been i think challenging for our family was um finding churches that are both 
active in the sense that they're not dying, right? There are churches who have a great histories of like uh, engaging in the civil rights movement and things like that. And like right mm-hmm. now, um, it's an aging, dying, shrinking congregations mm-hmm. that are not active anymore. So it's more of, they have a story to tell, to pass on, um, but they're in some ways a shell of what they used to be. Um, and there's a lot of that here in Harrisburg. And then there's, um, yeah, this multiracial, it's actually a church, church of the Brethren congregation that we kind of connected with. Mm. And it's been just kind of neat to, um, there, it's a little neighborhood church um, in the poor section of Harrisburg and Allison Hill, um, which is the most diverse part of our town. Um, largely black and brown, but like very diverse overall. Um, mm. And so in our community, we have um, lots of folks who are undocumented. Um, so we're, uh, we've dealt, we've, I've known some folks who've been um, arrested by uh, ICE agents mm. in our community. Wow. Um, yes, that's, um, and so our journey has been trying to align with and partner with different Christian leaders in our neighborhood that are, you know, want to actually pursue justice together, link arms and collaborate together. Um, I feel like my own Christian, my own Christianity in terms of like how I place, I don't know. I mean, I always feel it's, it's hard to talk about, um, like I don't identify with white American evangelicalism. So it's like tough when we, when we talk about like national, in fact, even I was thinking, maybe I should have said this earlier, but I was thinking as you were, we were talking about the, the text, right? The Luke four text. And I was thinking like, you know, like I kind of get their anger, you know, in the sense of hmm. situating them and thinking, so I'm thinking as a That's black right. American, That's right? right? And I'm like, you know, I get their anger, like, because who wants good news for the Romans, you know? <laughs> like, you That's know? right. Like, so, and so I, for whenever I read this yeah. passage, I always feel We like, want day of vengeance. Right, I want some day. I'm like, like and un- come on. Understandably so. Like, this right. is time for them to pay. Right. They have made they us suffer. They need to get what's coming this to them. This is their turn. Right? Yeah. Isn't there a God of justice? Doesn't that yeah. include him? And so, um, so I read, there's a part of me that both, knows that God is bigger and bigger than just, you know, the God of black people. Right. (laughs) Mm. Um, And that loves all people. Um, But sometimes that's, that's not always something I even want to always name. Right. Mm. Um, Mm. To, to know and experience this God of love and grace is one thing, um, but doesn't mean that you always want that deep down. And so there's always this internal work, right. That is going on. So I was, I always joke and say, even I, my next book that's coming out, I end um, some of it talking about Jonah, right. And talking about how I, I get Jonah, right. Yeah. I get Jonah. Yeah. Um, Jonah knows that God is bigger than himself, right. He knows that God loves and is beyond, you know, so there's this conflict between, um, and I think that's precisely what this um, these folks in the synagogue are wrestling with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's that's not the message, you know. You don't want to hear that. They're still in exile. It hasn't even ended yet, right? Yeah. They're still being exploited. Um, yeah. Who wants to hear that message, Jesus? <laughs> you know, like that's that's yeah. not the time for that, right? And so I I guess just on a being transparent, I resonate with that, um, not because mm-hmm. I believe 
like I believe that Jesus is articulating who God is, but it's a hard word sometimes. It's not mm. always the, the right. trendy word that you want to hear, um, especially when, you know, you feel like particular moments where your community is feeling particularly pressed, right? Um, that mm. that's not the word that you want to hear. Um, mm. And it's precisely at that moment that we need to hear Jesus, right? Where you, I, I even appreciate um, Cone who says, you know, there's times yeah. in which the black community, when they kind of like have this kind of doubt about their relationship with God, it's precisely when they need to claim that. But it's when they presume that identity mm. that they need to be watch out, right? And so, so even Cone understood very clearly the dangers of trying to have this kind of almost nationalistic kind of sense in which God yeah. is for us. Mm. Right. And so he's, yeah. um, that God is greater than um, mm. the transcendent and, and, and loving even beyond, you know, um, those limitations that we wish that we could box God into. And so, hmm. um, yeah. Oh, that was so yeah, good. Beautiful, Drew. Yeah. <laughs> so great. Well, this has been a joy. Thank you so much. Yeah, I feel really encouraged and it's just a really hard time right now, you know, in our neighborhood. Yeah. And I always thought something really bad goes down. I'm going to be so happy. I live in my neighborhood and with my friends and I can't see them. And it's right. just like yeah. devastating and they are not yeah. into technology. And so it's just like, yeah. it's rough. So thank you for uh, encouraging me. Daniel, thank when you. we remember, we uh, ask our guests, whether they'd pray for those who are listening. Um, you've already given so much, but would you feel comfortable doing that? Okay. Okay. Father God, we just thank you so much for this time to be together and to hear stories and to be transformed and to be made uncomfortable by the scriptures, to be, I don't know, to be truthful about how little we get it sometimes. I just pray for people who are listening right now. Um, I just know we are in a collective time of suffering and grief that we can't even really begin to recognize. We thank you for this scripture passage and how we know, Jesus, that you, your eyes right now are on the poor and the suffering and those who will be the most impacted by this pandemic. We trust mm. your love. Uh, we trust your love is bigger than us and what we are able or not able to do right now. We just pray um, for safety for um, the entire world. I know that's ridiculous mm. to pray, but um, that's the dream that you've given me is to see everybody yeah. flourish. And so we yeah. lean into that dream even when we don't see it realized in front of us. Yes. Amen. Amen. Mm. Amen. Thank you. Well, Danielle, thank you for your work and witness. We're, we're deeply appreciative of um, uh, not just your writing, but all the things that never end up in books. That is just your daily life in your neighbourhood. So thank you for the way that, that you love like God loves. Yep. Thanks, guys. Yep. Mm. And uh, also, of course, we want to make sure to note that her book, um, The Myth of the American Dream, Reflections on Affluence, Autonomy, Safety and Power, is releasing in May. So everybody go out and buy that book. It is excellent. Um, it's powerful. Share that with all your white American evangelical friends. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is next time I get invited to that apologetics conference. I can say I have a tract for white American evangelicals to introduce them to Jesus. Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> 
The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse. 